So I'm thrilled this morning to be able to introduce to you Emma Cotterill. Um, as I've already shared, I met with Emma in Greg's um, in Manchester in Atherton a number of years ago. And um, it's really interesting when you look at the bios, what people send. This is what Emma said. She's a Christian missional leader, first and foremost. I was thrilled to see that as the heading. A lawyer specialising in human trafficking, a pioneer lead in the development of initiatives, particularly in regard to refugee communities and combating human trafficking, both in a local and national level in Sweden. Part of a missional community within the Salvation Army in Helsingborg, who's planted a new congregation and new expressions of church in their context with Mark and the team. Um, you may have seen her podcast, Venture 12. If not, I recommend it to you. They get some great speakers on there, to be honest. And also a team member of the Movement Leaders Collective. If you don't know what the Movement Leaders Collective, it's a network of leaders who are committed to movements and networks together. Alan Hirsch, Rich Robinson, a number of other leaders lead it. Myself and Andrea are very fortunate to be part of the European one and also the worldwide one. Um, and uh, it's a great initiative, which some of our pioneer enablers have been. Emma, we're thrilled to have you with us this morning, to share your heart, to share your passion, to share what God has laid on your heart. Unfortunately, she's got a croaky voice this morning, so she's struggling a bit. Um, she's had a quick drink, I think. But we want to pray for you, Emma, before you share with us what's on your heart. Father God, we thank you for Emma, for who she is in Christ. I want to thank you for her family. I want to thank you for the way in which you're using her in Sweden and Helsingborg. I want to thank you that she is a woman that's anointed by you, called by you, and compelled by you. I want to pray that you speak prophetically through her to us this morning. Give us hearts to receive, ears to hear, and then to do something about it, I pray. So, Lord Jesus, use her powerfully. In the precious name of Jesus, I make this prayer. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Em. Yes, thank you very much for inviting me. And I want to apologise beforehand if it's difficult to hear me. I've been struggling with a cold for the last couple of days. So do put your volume on and... I'm praying that my voice will, will last for, for the session for you, but really, really excited to be able to share with you about female apostolic leadership today. Um, so female apostolic leadership, not just apostolic leadership and not just female leadership, but female apostolic leadership. I believe that it, this theme fits into what you were sharing um, together with Rich yesterday, that it is a movement issue that we uh, need to be grappling with um, in this day and age. And I hope that I will be able to share with you today why I think that that is the case and that you will also be excited to explore it further um, as you leave here today. But I believe that there is a lack of female apostles, apostolic leadership uh, in the church today. And we need to do something about that because that's not just an issue for women, uh, it is a, an issue for the whole church, it is a movement issue. Um, I've got a picture behind me, it's a replica of Leonardo da Vinci's Last Supper, and that painting usually hangs above my piano at home. Uh, it was given to me and Mark uh, after we had helped uh, a young Afghan boy coming to this country in 2015 as a, as a minor and his mother 
um, a Muslim lady in Tehran, in Iran, sent us this as a thank you for helping him. He's, he's now very much a part of our church, one of the leaders in our church. And I just uh, love the story that that painting brings with it. And I smile when I see it. At the same time, I don't know how well you can see that, but perhaps you are familiar with the painting, the original. Um, there's something that I don't like about the painting at the same time. It's kind of giving me mixed feelings because the painting that Leonardo da Vinci drew was a painting of um, a Last Supper where there were only men present, Jesus in the centre, but only male participants in the Last Supper. So that's kind of a, a bit of a disturbing image as well. We had a bit of a conversation over Easter with my two boys. I've got two boys, Albert and Herman, they're eight and five, and we were talking over Easter about this image, and I felt compelled to explain to them that this was not the case. Jesus was not just there with men. He was also surrounded by women, and clearly this, this image of this medieval-type um, table uh, was very different to what it would have been like at the time when Jesus shared this very special meal um, with his friends. And so this image is telling us something not about what happened at the time of the Last Supper when, when Jesus was sharing his, his meal before the crucifixion with his friends, but it does tell us something about the church, about the apostolic people in the church for the past few centuries. It does tell us something about that story and it does tell us something about what needs to change in our time as well because all the signs are there, all the signs are there in the past, in the early days of the church, in the present, the kind of times this, this post-pandemic world that we are living in and in the stirring of the spirit that something needs to be different. The apostolic table needs to be set in a different way. The participants need to be diverse in its makeup. It's all there. And I'm hoping to take you on a bit of a journey of discovery into all of that today and for you to continue that discovery on your own as well beyond this talk today because we can't afford not to explore this topic we need to unlock female apostolic leadership for the sake of the church it is an equality issue it's a justice issue i think we can feel that particularly those of us who are uh, gearing, gearing towards the prophetic we can feel the pain of the past the generational hurt the individual hurt and that is important the pain is there uh, but there's also a, um, riches to discover in this topic because there's something about unlocking female apostolic leadership, which is to do with more than equality. It's to do with more than injustice. It is to do with movement and unleashing the potential that was there from the beginning in the church that is there in that seed that Andrew was talking about that needs to be there in that tree in order for there to be a forest for our time. So going into the past of the early church, um, I stumbled across this topic a few years ago. Um, I've been busy in anti-trafficking for, for 12 years, but a few years ago, God was nudging me on this topic and I kind of couldn't escape um, those nudges at the end of the day. So I began studying and um, I came across this BBC documentary about Jesus' um, Jesus's female disciples. I don't know if you've seen it. 
uh, but it features um, two female uh, theologians, Joan Taylor and Helen Bond. Uh, I don't know if it's still available on the BBC, but if it is, I really, really recommend it um, to you. Uh, but they were talking about Mary Magdalene and they were talking about her name, Mary Magdalene. What does that mean? And the fact that people have always been interpreting that name as being um, uh, speaking of Mary as coming from Magdala, a specific geographical place. And people have been doing excavations and trying to work out where she was from. But they were suggesting something completely different. They were suggesting that it was a nickname given to her, Magdala actually meaning tower. And they were suggesting that Jesus had given Mary Magdalene the nickname Mary the Tower. And they were inviting us to kind of imagine why she would have given us, been given that nickname by Jesus. Was she a really tall and imposing character? Was she somebody who was strong and firm in her faith? Um, was she a place of refuge for other people? What kind of a person would Mary have been if Jesus had nicknamed her Mary the Tower? And this is in keeping with Jesus's character anyway. He was giving people nicknames all the time. He was giving um, nicknames like the Sons of Thunder. Um, and, and so why wouldn't she have been known as Mary the Tower? Why, why would we suddenly assume that Mary would have been known just by the place where, where she would have been born? And in fact, if you look at places known as Magdala, there were plenty of them because there were lots of towers in lots of different villages. So that would have been very non-specific. So they were exploring this and this was like groundbreaking for me because I'd never heard this. I, I didn't really um, see uh, uh, anybody in, in, in my background talking about women as apostles or even women as, as disciples necessarily, you know, growing up, um, being uh, asked to look at Peter and Paul and other male disciples as the primary sort of role models for how, how we should live our faith out in, in the world. But here they were suggesting that Mary Magdalene, not only was she a disciple close to Jesus, following him through his ministry, then to the cross, the tomb, witnessing the resurrected Jesus and being actually commissioned by him to go and tell the other apostles about the good news that Jesus Christ was alive again. She was an apostle to the apostle, and I'd not ever heard that before, an apostle to the apostles. But that's how Mary Magdalene was known and understood um, named, in fact, by the early church fathers. But then something happened, and we've ended up in, in, in many cases with a completely different image of Mary Magdalene. I think the most common rumor that we've heard about Mary Magdalene is that she was a prostitute uh, or she was in love with Jesus. And we've had these blockbuster stories um, lingering throughout our, throughout our history with her even the Chosen series, which I enjoyed to some extent, I had to turn it off in the end because they were promoting this image of Mary Magdalene as a prostitute, which wouldn't have been a problem if, if she was, uh, but there is just no evidence in the scriptures at all. This is sexual slander that she was exposed to, which was started by Pope Gregory the Great in 591, would you imagine? And it's lasted with us to the year of 
2022, and we still believe she was apostate. But she has been exonerated by the Catholic Church in 1966. She was reinstated by the Catholic Church as an apostle to the apostles in 1988. But news does not travel fast, my friends. We still believe she was a prostitute instead of honoring her as the apostle to the apostles, that she actually is a hero of our faith and a hero female apostle that we can role model ourselves on today. And there are other women like that in the Bible as well. Just think about Phoebe. How much do you know about Phoebe? She only shows up in Romans 16 too. There's uh, only very, very little evidence about her work in Romans, but yet we can find traces about her there that we can really learn something uh, of. She was in fact the uh, apostle. She was a female itinerant apostles. There weren't just uh, female house church leaders. There were female itinerant apostles. And she was given the honor and the trust to um, share the letter of the Romans to the Roman church. Just imagine the fullness of Paul's theology in the letter of Romans. He was able to share that because that would have been the practice at the time, that if you were sent as an emissary with a letter, uh, the likelihood of you also sort of extrapolating, explaining that letter to that audience would have also uh, been the likely scenario. So the likelihood is, Phoebe would have gone to the Roman church and preached Paul's message on his behalf and probably prepared for his journey to Spain is what theologians believe. And of course, there are lots of other women in the Bible who had apostolic roles. You've got Junia, um, you've got Nympha, you've got uh, Lydia, you've got uh, other house church leaders who probably would have had to be pioneering because at this point Christianity is completely completely new so there are lots of women that we haven't learned very much about if you have just five minutes this evening I would really challenge you to go and read Romans 16 and just count how many females Paul mentions in that chapter as colleagues and friends on mission he had many. His practices perhaps speak louder than some of the words that we've got caught up on in some of the letters. We've got to recognize when we read scripture that scripture was written by men. Now, that is um, something that we have to live with. It's the, to do with the context that the Bible was, was written in. But the Bible also does have rich um, stories of female apostolic leadership. And Dana Roberts, who is a missiologist, she said that the Bible still, with, with the fact that it was written by men and through the lens of, of male eyes, and even when women's stories are told, they're perhaps used as rhetorical devices for, for the males writing them. She says that even despite all of that, the Bible tells us, indicates to us that Christianity in the first three centuries, like the global church in the 20th century, was a women's movement. Was a women's movement. So why have we ended up with this picture then of the apostolic table, one might wonder. And there's obviously lots of reasons for that, but I'd say the primary reason for that is in our tradition. 
Richard Raw talks about the fact, the fact that we see our faith through a, um, a tricycle, through scripture, through tradition, and through the spirit. And Protestants, he says, are leading, leading with the scripture, with, with scripture. But we also have tradition and we have the spirit. Um, and when it comes to our tradition, Chris, Christendom is the primary lens, is the primary frame, the map that we understand our reality, that we understand our missiology, our ecclesiology, um, etc. And Christendom is not friendly to women. I don't know if you know that, but um, Constantine chose a particular form of Christianity because it was very diverse. Um, in the 300s with lots of different expressions based on the fivefold, etc. cetera, um, in the early days of, of Christendom. But Constantine thought that the very, very male-centered and patriarchal theology of some of those churches that were springing up fitted his empire building more. So he picked a theology that was patriarchal because Christendom uh, is uh, political and it is social, as much as it is uh, religious. So we've ended up with a lens that is very much based on the subordination of women within the family, within society. And we have got blindsided by the fact that we are living within this, this kind of worldview that Christendom has still um, brought, with us, uh, uh, brought uh, with it. It is reflecting in our systems. It is reflected in our cultures, in our institutions also in our relationships and our understanding of our identities, you know, even to what young girls are imagining themselves to be when they grow up. So we've been perfectly designed to get exactly what we are getting in the church, as Alan Hirsch would put it. The system has produced um, this type of apostolic table since the Middle Ages and up until today in many, many cases. Looking at the present then, we're moving on from, from um, the backdrop of there was a female apostolic movement, there was perhaps even a women's movement in the early days. If we're looking at the present, I love um, Phyllis Tickle, she's sadly passed away now, but if you haven't read anything by Phyllis Tickle, I'd really uh, recommend it to you, not just because she's got a very funny name, but also because she writes very well uh, about our time, um, uh, the uh, uh, emergence of, uh, of the great emergence is is uh, the best one I think that she's she's written. She says that every five hundred years the church has got a has a rummage sale. Um, every five hundred years it goes down the basement, it picks up what it's saved for a rainy day, and picks it up, looks at it, works out what it should save and not. And she reckons that the last time that we did that was during the Reformation. And now we are going through a similar period where we are again exploring what do we want to keep, what don't we want to keep. So it's a cultural moment that happens across society and it happens in church uh, as well. And I think that there are lots of uh, things to, to suggest that that is exactly what, what we are exploring um, now. Uh, in the marketplace, many people are talking about a VUCA reality, a volatile, uncertain, complex and ambiguous reality, which means that um, things are, are shifting, things are uh, being turned upside down, hierarchies are not promoted anymore, 
law and order is being questioned, even democracy is being questioned. We want tribe as opposed to nation state. Um, there is a, um, a distribution of everything, including power, which when you're talking of Black Lives Matter might be really great, but when you're talking ISIS, not so great. So there is a, a complexity in this, which has got lots of positive potential, but also lots of negative uh, negatives and risk, particularly in the time that we are sort of um, unraveling um, all of this. The leadership qualities that are needed for this type of experience, for this type of time that we are living in now, if you're looking at what research is telling us, actually the type of leadership traits that women more frequently than men, more frequently, not necessarily, but more frequently, than men are displaying are required more for this time. Things like um, intuition, uh, collaboration, you've mentioned already today, empathy, compassion, humility. So again, I'm not saying all women are humble, clearly not all women are humble, uh, but if you were to pick uh, leaders on the basis of humility, the likelihood of you ending up with more women than men uh, would be would be uh, higher. You also need agility, you need innovation because of the types of time that we're living in. And so the combination here is women with innovation skills, aka we need female apostolic women. And this is nothing new. Um, if you're looking at the experience, for example, of um, international development, and you're looking at the work of UN Women, of the International Labour Organization, if you're looking at Agenda 2030, which is the UN Development Agenda for a Sustainable Future, there is a focus, there is a recognition that investment in female entrepreneurs, which is, which is the sort of secular term for female apostles, is worth investing in and not just for the sake of investing in those women which is obviously a worthy course in itself but because it makes financial sense when you are investing in a female entrepreneur in a community you are automatically investing into that community you are automatically in investing into the development of that whole society so this is nothing new people outside of the church have recognized this for decades and they have put their money into these women for decades because it makes financial sense. It makes societal sense. If you're looking at the pandemic as well, the fact of the matter is, and this is what research shows, is that female leaders, both political but also marketplace leaders, have, generally speaking, done better than their male counterparts, both in terms of results but also importantly, in terms of getting people to come alongside them, to join them and to be appreciated afterwards in terms of the way that they were managing to navigate the complexities, the uh, ambiguities and negotiating compromises together with their workforce, for example. So there is some evidence uh, to suggest that women are needed and particularly female entrepreneurs, female apostolic leaders. And why is that? Well, they are the foundation layers for all of the other gifts. I know you've been doing a lot on um, APEST training in the UK. Well, this is the next level of APEST training right here. 
it is that we, we need to explore what does it mean in, in, in practice when we're talking apostolic leadership. Well, we need the foundation layers to go up first in order for the other gifts to be able to build upon that for the future of the church. So the apostolic table has to be reset. And that just doesn't just mean inviting women to the table. It doesn't just mean making sure that the quotas are, are, are there and are right. It means a lot more than that. It means enabling women to set the table, to reset the table. It's not going to be square like that. It's probably going to be round, I imagine. And in order to do that, we need to go through the movement journey, which Andrew has already referred to today. This is part of the movement journey. This is not a separate issue. It is a part and an, a crucial part of going through the movement journey of going down the curve of, of unlearning and relearning. What does it mean? Why do we need female apostolic leaders? Metanoia, you know, turning away from something, turning away from this old image of apostolic charismatic leaders, leaders on a platform um, that are solely so heroes that are male and uh, understanding what, what the heritage that we actually have. We have the, the greatest heritage of any organization, you know, the, the heritage of female apostolic leaders walking alongside Jesus, learning together with men and joining in with the story that Jesus was drawing up, the map that Jesus was drawing up for us in order to build the kingdom. And we've got it wrong. We've got to realize that we've got it wrong in the church. Uh, we've got to recognize that we've hurt some people. Uh, there's generational hurt uh, amongst women and there is individual hurt. And we can't brush past it. We've got to go through the mire. We've got to go through the, um, the, the kind of um, pain that, uh, and recognizing that people have different types of pain. Uh, we don't want to rush past it in order to have movement. We have to go through that through that curve and, and help people to deal with that. And uh, together we need to seek reconciliation. And we need to explore, you know, what have we done? And that goes for all of us, not just for men. It goes for all of us. You know, how do we, how do we, um, how have we uh, empowered female apostolic leaders through our own uh, leadership? How have we contributed? to the uh, Christendom narrative perhaps, or how have we contributed to try and break some of those barriers down that are there in our institution? Or have we just um, you know, given up before trying? How have we uh, impacted on the possibility of female apostolic leaders being able to live out their calling in a local, uh, divisional, a, a national context? And then think about who your heroes are, both on an individual basis and on a Salvation Army-wide kind of basis. Who are our heroes? You know, how, who are our key leaders, our pioneers? Who are the people that we look up to? And who decides on our money, time, and effort? Where are those decisions made? And are they made uh, in a way where female apostles might be able to flourish and thrive? Who are the leaders coming up through the system? Well, if we're producing very few female apostolic leaders, there's something wrong with the system, I'm afraid. We need to start imagining a future where there are female as well as male heroes. And I know it's easy to say, oh, well, we've got Catherine Booth. Well, I'm sorry, that's just not enough. And I think sometimes we can be blindsided by our own history as well. Yes, we did have movemental um, 
capacities at the beginning of our movements, but it's not enough to have female officers. Where are they? Which positions do they get put in? Um, are we actually selecting people for roles on the basis of gifts and callings and um, fivefold, or are we selecting them on the basis of something else? The truth um, of the matter is that we've got a lot of work to do in the Salvation Army as well, because we've slipped into systems that are more to do with the Christendom culture than the movemental culture of our past and the movemental culture of the early church. And if we want to move towards a future where all peoples are equipped to be filling their role in accordance with the calling that God has on their life, then we need to start making some shifts towards that preferred future. And I think there are five things that we can do that we need to look at in order to start making that shift. And it's truth, it's vision, it's capacity, it's competence, and it's permission. So truth, we need to look at, you know, what is it actually like for women serving within the Salvation Army? Do we dare to ask that question? Do we dare to do an equality audit asking, do you feel that you are in uh, a role where you are fulfilling your calling? So that's truth. Vision, what do apostolic women, because they are there, they might not be in function, but they will be there because God equips the church with the people that are needed. What do apostolic women, wherever they are in the organization, dream of and push for? Because there will be people on edges trying to push for things. They may not be successful uh, or they may only be partially successful, but what do they dream of and what do they push for? Vision. And then capacity. You know, if women are stuck doing admin at THQ, who are apostolic, I'm afraid we're not going to see the movement that we need because people who are working 100% with admin who potentially then are told, well, you can vision cast on, you know, your spare time or whenever you feel that you've got time to take a lunch break or after hours, then um, that's not going to do it because innovation takes time. It takes headspace. It takes time to grapple with problem solving and all of those kind of things. So capacity, we've got to ensure that apostolic women have capacity to actually innovate and think of those groundbreaking foundational ideas that we need for the future of the Salvation Army and for the church. And then we need a competence. So are we ensuring that female apostolic leaders are getting the kind of training that they need in order to fulfill the calling that they have? Because if they're not being trained, if they're not being mentored, the likelihood is that they're going to, well, they're going to go off somewhere else, probably if they're apostolic leaders. Um, so they'll end up somewhere else in society. Hopefully God will use them there. But it would be great if we could keep some female uh, apostolic leaders as well in our organization, I think and to encourage them and train them up to use those skills to the best of their ability. And permission, you know, we have a tendency to only want to put money where we know we're going to get results. But the reality of, of the times that we're living in and uh, the reality of uh, innovation and pioneering generally is that we're going to fail but we're gonna learn something from it, but we've got to fail and then we have to learn and then we need to try again. 
And, you know, as long as we're doing that, we're likely to stumble across something that won't fail and that will succeed. So we've got to give permission and we've got to be okay with failure. So we need to reframe our thinking um, around our platforms. We, we can use the mDNA, if you're familiar with Alan Hirsch's Forgotten Ways, um, to think through the female apostolic in that way as well. How do we disciple in order that females will be released? Well, we need to base it on the females in the Bible, the strong um, Mary, the Towers, and other people like that. Female apostolic leadership has got to be fully integrated into our movement thinking because it's a major stumbling block right now for the movement uh, in the church. Did you know that the majority of Christians today are to be found in Africa? And the majority of the Christians in Africa are women. It is a women's movement again. I reckon God's going to send some African women to, uh, to be apostles for the church in our day. And he's going to send lots of women in lots of other places to be foundation layers for uh, uh, everybody else in the church. And if we can just unclog uh, this movement blocker and make it into um, a, a foundation for the movement, the growth, the, uh, um, the seed that we are needing to see in our time today, then I believe we're going to see movement again on a scale that we haven't, uh, any of us, I think, in our lifetime. And I would love for that to happen. It can be done. I want to finish with a quote from uh, Jürgen Maltzmann. Uh, and it pretty much says everything that I wanted to say. So if I miss anything, here it is. The spirit of God is no respecter of social distinction. It puts an end to them. All spirit impelled revival moments in the history of Christianity have taken note of these social revolutionary elements in the experience of the spirit and have spread them. They became a danger to patriarchy, the men's church and the slave owners. And I pray that we will see that kind of revival again today. And I believe in it. I hope you're with me. Thank you.